Hello and welcome back to another edition of the Dog and Duck Show. My name is Warren Maynard. I'm the dog. With me is my co-host, Mark Schmore. He is the duck. I was out of town last week. Big thanks to my friend, JJ Vansel, for filling in and representing the dogs on the Dog and Duck Show extremely well. I enjoyed listening to the podcast while sitting uh, next to the pool in Orlando, soaking up some vitamin D and working on my suntan. And uh, both the University of Washington and the University of Oregon are sitting pretty in the sun right now, 2-0, facing uh, a lot of positive positive uh, feedback right now. So, Mark, let's get into it. Your ducks escaped narrowly over the weekend, so I've got to assume you are doing pretty well right now. Uh, Warren, I cannot tell you the relief that I felt on Saturday night, and that that feeling of relief has continued throughout the last couple of days. I just think back and I go, ah, survive in advance, survive in advance. And uh, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't always pretty, but uh, anytime you win on the road against a decent team, it's something to celebrate. So I'm taking it and I'm celebrating. Well, those of us who listen to the Dog and Doug show will remember that a few weeks ago we did a preseason preview where we walked through every game and made our predictions. And Mark, I originally marked that game as a W for Oregon, but as you outlined all the reasons why it could be a potential trap game, a potential loss for the Ducks, I changed my prediction mid-show and called for texas tech to defeat uh oregon and i was almost right and we'll we'll break that down a little bit what happened bo nix versus former duck quarterback tyler shuck and uh lots of uh interesting storylines to break down there but the story i think in many ways for this season has been the tremendous start of the college football season by the Pac-12 in their final year of existence. Uh, Eight teams finished in the top 25 uh, this week after wins by USC, Washington, Oregon, Utah, Colorado, Oregon State, Washington State, and UCLA. So uh, in my opinion, it's, it's the deepest and most talented Pac-12 roster from top to bottom that we have seen in a long, long time, if in my entire lifetime. Uh, And, you know, there were some teams like Oregon and Utah that uh, things looked pretty precarious going into the fourth quarter, but they found a way to pull it out. Uh, Let's give a, a hand to our dear friends in Pullman, the Washington State Cougars that Uh, They jumped out to an early halftime lead, and then uh, Wisconsin came back, scored a couple touchdowns, and it looked like, oh, here we go. This is going to be a classic Coug moment, but uh, head coach Jake Dickert settled the the boys. Uh, they, They came out with the W, and at the end of the game, he made an impassioned plea to anybody who's listening we belong in the power five. So 
Mark, in general, what were some of your takeaways from this weekend in the in the Pac-12? Yeah, you know, it's funny. There was quite a bit of hype kind of coming in uh, to the conference season. Uh, we certainly were hyping it up. And I had in the back of my mind kind of a thought at one point of I was thinking like, what if what if the conference just doesn't live up to this hype, you know, this yeah. year? What if Utah drops their opener to Florida and Oregon drops it to Texas Tech or Washington loses to Michigan State? And what what if we're kind of sitting there at the end of September going like, oh, maybe, maybe it, you know, the, the Beavers don't look nearly as good as they did last year or like – I had kind of the scenario in the back of my mind of like, well, yeah, what if, what if none of these teams really look quite as good as, as mm. we they are. And yeah, Warren, the truth is, is it's the opposite. It's like, it's exceeded. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like we didn't have Colorado on our radar. We didn't really have Washington state on our radar, you know, um, UCLA turning to a true freshman quarterback seemingly has given them a breath of fresh air. Like, and so to have eight teams in the top 25 in what is basically the last year of the conference as we know it is, is an absurd thing. And if you, if you fast forward, I mean, the Huskies have like a legitimate game this week. They're pretty much the only one of those contenders that's, that's playing anybody relevant, you know? Um, So if you fast forward to the first week of conference play, all of a sudden it's Colorado at Oregon. Oregon State at Washington State, uh, UCLA at Utah. Those those are three games that are all conference mm. openers that all feel like huge ramifications for for both teams involved. So I'm I'm wanting to click fast forward now. Now that Oregon has gotten through their you know big non conference game, I'm just wanting to get to that. But we have another week, uh, and obviously the the Huskies have a huge game to to get through before we before we get into conference play. Absolutely. And, you know, we talked about in the preseason how incredibly loaded this Pac-12 conference was when it came to quarterbacks. And, of course, we mentioned Bo Nix and Michael Penix Jr. and defending Heisman Trophy winner Caleb Williams and the grizzled veteran Cam Rising. And then, you know, there there were some guys like Jaden Delora that put up a ton of yards last year but mark looking at the passing yardage leaders in the nation right now three of the top five are coming from the pac-12 number one shadur sanders number two michael Penix jr and number five cam ward so you you know it's just like you said from top to bottom there is talent there is productivity and someone is going to have to win. Someone's going to have to lose in each of these uh, conference games that are coming up. So things will sort themselves up over time. But whatever Pac-12 team you're cheering for right now, aside from perhaps Arizona State and Arizona and Cal, you're feeling pretty good right now about the way the season is looking. And Stanford. And Stanford and Stanford. Yeah. So four, four squads that are clearly at the bottom tier, but even, even Cal played a respectable game against Auburn. Uh, You know, all three of those battled it out. So 
all three of those teams had at least a half where they outplayed their opponent in yeah. their you know their biggest games of the year thus far. So um, there's at least some signs of hope with each of those three, where Stanford just seems kind of pretty much hopeless. But for the other eight, I think expectations are are sky high for each of them. And you know, you mentioned all of those those guys with the passing stats. These are not empty stats. Like Michael Penix played Boise State, who was a top 15 defense last year. Cam Ward played Wisconsin, who's historically always had good defenses. Shador Sanders has got to be one of the few quarterbacks in the entire country that has played two power five opponents in his first two Absolutely. games. So the fact that he's, you know, leading the nation in passing yardage, having played, you know, one of the tougher schedules of anybody out there. Um, yeah, it it's it's real. Like there, these, there are a lot of really good teams. I I think they could all beat each other on the right day, Mm -hmm. maybe one or two kind of rise above the crop in the coming weeks. Um, but it'll, it's, it, I just think it's going to be so much fun, Warren. It's going to be so much fun to watch this play out. Absolutely. And Mark, before we dive into Oregon's thrilling road win against Texas tech, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit and I want you to tell us a little bit about some of the writing projects that you're working on this season. Mark's moments. That's kind of been your uh, website, your, your pet project for getting all of your sports thoughts and stories and uh, you know, memories out there, but you know, you've, you've kind of opened that up. You've kind of taken on some additional challenges this year. So walk us through some of the things you're doing from a writing perspective and how any of our listeners can, you know, follow the work that you're putting out. Yeah. So the uh, blog that I write for is uh, it's uh, mshmore.substack.com is uh, the address for that. And uh, the blog is titled Mark's Moments. And essentially I'm, I'm, trying this college football season to do three uh, pieces a week, all kind of related to this last wonderful year of the PAC 12 slash PAC 10 conference. And so how that works is uh, Monday, I've been publishing like a weekend recap where I just kind of run through each of the games and, and try to pull out maybe a little nugget of interest about each, each game from uh, the previous weekend involving schools in the conference Uh, on Wednesdays, I've, I've been uh, doing a, I've started a top 10 series, like a historical top 10 series. So the first week I did the top 10 quarterbacks uh, in PAC 12 PAC 10 play. So going back to 1978, which is when the Arizona schools were added and the PAC eight became the PAC 10. That, that was kind of the timeframe that I used. I put together a top 10 list. Uh, this series of uh, top tens has also being run on superwestsports.com. Mm-hmm. So they've been gracious enough to um, to post those articles there as well. So so they ran that one over the weekend. And then on Fridays, once we get into conference play, I'm hoping to do a little something about Oregon and their kind of historical rivalry with each of their conference opponents. A lot of these rivalries are going to go away. So, for instance, when Oregon plays Stanford, uh, I want to take a look back at the history of the Oregon-Stanford rivalry and call out some of the greatest moments for me as an Oregon fan and some of the worst moments for me as an Oregon fan. The hope there is that if if I have any Stanford fans in my 
in my sphere that they would enjoy reading that just as much mm -hmm. as, as an Oregon fan would because it's it's highlighting both the, the good and the bad of the rivalry from from both perspectives so that is uh the goal going forward throughout the college football season is to publish something every Monday Wednesday and Friday uh morning and thus far I've been holding to that schedule I'm, I'm right now Warren working on uh the top 10 offensive linemen from the uh, conference history. That one's going to go live mm. tomorrow morning. So um, yeah, would love for readers to check out mshmore.substack.com to uh, check out some of those articles. Well, it's great stuff. You're, you're a terrific writer and uh, a great historian and lover of the sport and the conference. And uh, I am enjoying reading as many articles as I can get my hands on each week. So keep it up. I certainly hope that Lincoln Kennedy is going to find his way onto that top 10 list for all time offensive linemen, but uh, perhaps we'll all have to wait till tomorrow morning to find out what uh, the, the grand reveal is on that. I don't want to give away the whole list, uh, but I can tell you that Lincoln Kennedy is, is, is included. All right. Well, then it has become valid. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, hey, let's talk about this win by the Ducks, it, you know, on the road, in the heat, in Texas, against a Texas Tech team that had lost their opening game. I think it would be it would have been very easy to take it for granted that this is an easy W after seeing them stumble uh, coming out of the gate. But the Texas Tech, uh, you know, Red Raiders, they they came out with a lot of fire, a lot of firepower. And, uh, you know, former Oregon quarterback Tyler Shuck really put this team on his shoulders uh, through the air and on the ground to give the, the Red Raiders a, a real fighting chance to upset the Ducks at home. Yeah, I mean, th this is a team, if you remember in our season preview, you know, I pointed out that Bruce Feldman of The Athletic thought Texas Tech was a top 20 team coming into the year, that they had mm. talent at many different positions um, that jumped off the screen to him. This is a team that plays really well at home. They beat both Texas and Oklahoma at home last year in high-scoring shootouts. So regardless of the opening loss to Wyoming, I was looking at this as Oregon is playing a top 25 caliber opponent on the road in a hostile environment in a hundred degree heat and, and everything that comes with it. And, and I think it, it lived up to that. I mean, I think uh, Texas tech came to play uh, both teams had kind of some early season sloppiness. I think Oregon committed 14, penalties which uh you know josh connerly alone the, the prized offensive line sophomore committed three offsides penalties i think all in the first half because i think he was just kind of so wound up and had took him a while to kind of get his own emotions under control so um there were some things like that that uh had the mark of an early season road game and and a team mm -hmm. with a lot of young players that maybe haven't been in that environment yet. Um, a lot of new players playing together for the first time and maybe haven't figured out all of those things yet. So, but in the, at the end of the day, Warren, it was also just, it was a thrilling game. It was a thrilling game. It required a, 
you know, a comeback victory from Oregon. It, it required a lot of composure down the stretch, both on the offensive and defensive side of the ball for them to, to make plays when it mattered. And as an Oregon fan, I think got to just got to feel great about that. Yeah. And you mentioned composure. And I think certainly the, the play of Bo Nix at the end of the game was a key component to that. And he's, he's done it now. He's been a college starter for several years, both at Auburn and at uh, the university of Oregon. And that experience and that calm seemed to really show off in the fourth quarter on the road. Yeah. And he, I mean, he was, I thought good the entire game, even when they weren't moving the ball, it wasn't really because he was necessarily um, making any critical mistakes. He didn't turn the ball over at all. He hit Troy Franklin for a 70 plus yard bomb on the second series of the game. So uh, he was making plays, but his time to shine came midway through the third quarter. Oregon is Oregon had a rough, rough start to the third quarter. They get stuffed on a fourth and one quarterback sneak. They have a punt blocked. They give up a couple of touchdowns to Texas Tech, and they go from leading by five to now they're down by nine. Crowd is hostile, and Nick's led a 17-play drive that just kind of took the air out of the building, gets Oregon with the score to pull them within two. They get the ball back with about five minutes to go, and they've got to go down and set up a game-winning field goal. And again, he was cool as a cucumber, made the right reads, drove the offense down into the red zone, killed the clock as much as they could, and then and then took the field goal. So yeah, it's the third time, Warren, in his brief tenure at Oregon that he's had a two-score deficit in the fourth quarter that he's had to overcome, which takes a lot out of a quarterback to know that you've got to execute on multiple drives in a row to give your team a chance to win. That's, you know, that's a real test for a quarterback. And, and he is, he has passed that test uh, several times now. The bodacious campaign continues to, to grow. <laughs> so uh, there's no reason to, to not continue to, Uh, Hope that he'll be in New York at the end of the season. But Mark, you mentioned the fourth and one uh, play that didn't work out in the third quarter. And that seemed to be a, you know, pretty, a pretty critical theme for this game, both for Oregon and for Texas tech. Uh, And we've talked about Dan Lanning and his uh, aggressive approach to going for it on fourth down where maybe some more experienced coaches might be a little bit more conservative on those types of plays. Uh, And it certainly has worked out in his favor on a few notable occasions. And there's also been a few games where it, you know, was pretty costly for him, but break down this fourth, uh, you know, fourth down theme that, came up from both teams and both coaching, uh, you know, coaching squads on Saturday. Yeah. Well, I think on on the Oregon drive, that was, that was, you know, in the third quarter, uh, they faced a fourth and one. It was kind of a long one, I guess you could say maybe. uh, And they tried a quarterback sneak, which was a play that last year worked to great success for them. 
because of the interior of their line, the senior laden line uh, really was able to move some bodies. And that was a play they went to over and over again in short yardage situations. And in this particular situation, uh, they went to it earlier in the game and were successful with it. I think that was on a third and short. Uh, and then they went to it on a fourth and short and it got stuffed. And I think that is a reflection at this point that that interior of the offensive line isn't quite at the level that Oregon wants it to be at. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Oregon has a really high standard of offensive line play and they struggled to move the ball between the tackles uh, for most of the game. And, and it really did show up on that, uh, that fourth and one. What's interesting is that has been Lanning's MO is to kind of mm. be aggressive on fourth down, but there were multiple opportunities later in the game where one thought he might've been more aggressive and he played for field goals instead of touchdowns. There was a fourth and two at the five yard line where he took the points. And then on the final drive of the game, he basically had his running backs, you know, try to stay in bounds and go down rather than trying to, you know, call something a little more creative and get into the end zone content to take the field goal at the end. So, you know, you've kind of said you can't do it. You can't do, you can't do it both ways. You've either got to kind of go all in on this philosophy or, or not. And this was, this was a little more of Lanning seeming to kind of choose his moments um, in regards to that, uh, which I thought was interesting on the other side. Uh, I think Texas tech was looking at it and saying, this offense seems to be finding itself. They just, you know, took us down the field on a 17 play drive and we couldn't mm -hmm. get them off the field. And if we give them the ball back, we may not see the ball again. And so it's, you know, it's hard to, to completely dismiss that line of thinking. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, you know, we, we can kind of pick and choose with some of this stuff in terms of uh when it works, we praise a coach. When it doesn't work, we criticize a coach. I think in this particular case, um, one of them worked out, one of them didn't work out. It doesn't mean mm -hmm. that one decision was right and the other one was wrong. What I actually think was was the more interesting decision-making from the two coaches, Warren, was I don't know if you caught this, but on Oregon's first touchdown of the game, similar to what they did against Portland State last week, they did kind of one of those wild swinging gate two-point conversions. Mm-hmm. They converted it to get up to, you know, eight points right off the bat. And what that forced Texas Tech to do later in the game was they then went for two in an attempt to tie it. They didn't get it. Right. And then that turned out to be a huge factor late in the game because when Oregon kicked the field goal to go up by one point in the final two minutes of the game, it felt like the difference in the game was that Oregon converted a two-point conversion and Texas Tech didn't. So uh, that was one of those decisions that Lanning said in the postgame press conference. Hey, yeah, it's it it's great to sit up here in a press conference and talk to you after we run that play and it works. But at some point we're going to run that play and it's not going to work and I'm still going to have to sit here and talk talk about it. So he's yeah he's aware that it's kind of it you know uh, and that really is the case. I mean you know. Whatever it is, whether we're talking about fourth downs going for two when you don't have to, ultimately, it's high risk. It's high reward. If you get it, you're brilliant. If you don't get it, you're a buffoon. But uh, you can't. And, and I'm not saying that a, a, a coach 
who goes for it on fourth down has to go for it on every fourth down. He can still pick and choose. But if you are going to be that coach who gets lauded one week for making that, you know, more bold or audacious call, then you have to be prepared. And Lanning is acknowledging that you have to be prepared to take the criticism when it doesn't work out and acknowledge that, Hey, that decision may have cost us this game, but we're going, you know, there's a, there's a mindset there that says we're going to put the ball in our hands. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to trust ourselves. Absolutely. And this is a thing that, I mean, stealing a point on a two point conversion after the opening touchdown was really, that was a hallmark of Chip Kelly's tenure Mm -hmm. at Oregon. Oregon had a multitude of different formations that they would run for those trick plays. Steve Greatwood, longtime offensive line coach for Oregon designed all of those plays. Mark Helfrich pointed that out. He was doing color commentary in the Texas tech game. And he was kind of giving the history of that a little bit. Uh, And Oregon was so, confident in that that they they did it in the national title game against auburn and stole a point you mm-hmm. know and had an eight to seven lead in the national title game because they had a, a trick play in mind for that two-point conversion so they they used it to such efficiency and it really did put teams in a tough spot because now you're forcing a team to have to play catch up at some point later in the game they're going to have to go for two just to pull even uh so if if you can utilize that and have that in your toolkit, it can be a real game changer as far as strategy in game. It can mm-hmm. also be a real game changer in that it it wastes a ton of time for the opposing team in practice to now have to run through all of these little gimmicks and know right. how to defend them all, which I think is part of the reason why a team like Oregon does it is, is just to waste time for the other team preparing to try to, try to figure out how to stop it. So as an Oregon fan, knowing the history that Oregon has had with these plays uh, and, and a unique history. I don't know of any other school that really kind of embodied that the way that um, Chip Kelly's Oregon teams did. I love it. I love it. And I hope, I hope Lanning and his special teams coach continue to, to tinker with those sorts of, of things to try to give their team an edge. Cause I, I think it can really pay dividends down the road. Well, Lanning came to the University of Oregon as the former defensive coordinator for the national championship winning uh, Georgia Bulldogs. And last year, defense was more of a liability than an asset. What are you seeing right now from this Oregon defense, uh, you know, after watching them compete against the, you know, it was was the Shucks versus the Ducks uh, on, on Sunday or Saturday, but what what are your takeaways uh, about the defense? Yeah, there were certainly some things that you don't like to see. There were uh, a few different pass interference penalties in the secondary that um, had me rolling my eyes. There were you know a few different big plays given up. They gave up a fifty eight yard run to Tyler Shuck on the very on the opening series of the game. Uh, so a, a few things like that that uh, you hope can be coached out over the course of the season, but are certainly kind of troubling things if they, if they're not coached out 
um, are the types of things that that can really hinder a defense from perform, performing at their full potential. Uh, ultimately, they they held Texas Tech to 30 points. I don't know whether you consider that like a winning number or not. Last hmm. year, when they played Texas. They scored 37. When they played Oklahoma, they scored 51. So if you look at it in comparison mm-hmm. to those two games, you know, maybe 30 points in Lubbock is a good number. Um, I think the thing that I was most encouraged by Warren was the big plays that Oregon made. And I'm talking about four sacks. They forced four turnovers. One of those was the Hail Mary at the end, but three legit game-changing turnovers. Mm -hmm. They made a critical stop on fourth down, and they made a critical stop on that two-point conversion. So that's about 10 plays that were game-changing types of plays that, frankly, we did not see from Oregon last year hardly at all i mean oregon had pretty much the worst pass rush of of oregon's last you know three decades that i can remember last year Mm -hmm. they only had 18 sacks Mm -hmm. all year they only forced 21 turnovers all year and if you go back to the teams that have done really really well uh for oregon they've they've racked up a ton of sacks and they forced a lot of turnovers and that doesn't always mean that they keep the the team off the scoreboard. It doesn't mean that Oregon's never really had like a brick wall defense, but they have mm-hmm. a type of defense that if they score 42, they're probably going to hold you to 28 and they're going to come up with a few of those critical stops, a few game changing turnovers that help kind of blow the, blow the game open. And so I think that's, that's, that was missing last year. And this was a positive sign in that direction a lot of football left to be played, obviously, as to whether that trend continues. Um, But I think that that was an encouragement to me. Well, it certainly is not going to get any easier after this next weekend. They're playing, of course, Hawaii uh, on Saturday, but then they jump into the the Pac-12 slate. Colorado now looms large with uh prime time Shadur Sanders, Dylan Edwards, Travis Hunter. We'll dive into that a little bit uh later on. If not tonight, then uh certainly in next week's episode. But let's talk a little bit about the Huskies win over uh an outmatched Tulsa team. And you know, Mark, I I I, I noticed something uh, in watching this this game against Tulsa that I don't know if this would have ever been the case three, four, or five years ago or longer, but I was really struck by how many players on the Tulsa starting roster were former Power 5 highly recruited players that just didn't work out in wherever they had been before. Uh, and so, you know, you had guys that had been uh, recruited and, and committed to, to USC, to Oklahoma, to uh, Oklahoma state and uh, you know, several, you know, notable names. And so it just, it just struck me that uh, although obviously Washington uh, on paper should be the, the dominant team, it's not quite the same way as it may have been in, in the old days where 
you know, a kid was just not good enough to get recruited by a D1 school or not, excuse me, not a D1 school, but a, a power five school. Um, and he ends up settling for Tulsa. Now you've kind of got this shuffling of talent yeah. where, you know, there might be eight or nine guys on that team that have the measurables at least of being a five-star or four-star recruit. Yeah. And maybe they just couldn't put it together where they were at before. Yeah. Uh, so just, it was an interesting insight. Uh, of course the Huskies did come away with what felt like an unsatisfying 43 to 10 win uh, over Tulsa. Um, you know, Michael Penix Jr. did what he does, um, put up big yards. The receivers all, you know, uh, they all had multiple catches for at or around 100 yards. Uh, but there were some just terrible drops by some of the receivers that none of us really expected uh, to see and uh, some penalties. We were just a little bit more sloppy in this game than we were in the, the Boise state game. So I think it, it definitely left uh, you know, the team feeling like, Hey, we've got some work to do in preparation for Michigan state. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the purpose of these games, right? Is that uh, they give you a chance to uncover some of those issues to work through without, without the stakes being so high that you lose a game as a result of it. So you can have, you know, Michael Penix make a, a poor read on a particular throw. And that that's something that then you take back into the lab and you run it through in practice a few more times. And then he's more prepared for the, that look uh, yeah. the next round. Um so, yeah, I think that's uh, after the way that they played against Boise, I think it it's reasonable that they had a performance that was just a little less sharp because usually at the beginning of the year, teams have that game where they just don't quite have it all together. Washington came out of the gate just so strong yeah, and so emphatic in that Boise win that um, – you know, I think to to me it fits then that that the follow up to that that there might be a little more rust that that still just kind of needs to be worked through. That that seems to be totally reasonable. Yeah, and it, I mean, Michael Penix did throw an interception, and it's unclear whether or not that was on him. I got the sense that maybe there was a you know poor route run by Roma Dunze on that, um, but. Rome had a couple of egregious drops. Jalen McMillan had at the end of the, the first half had what would have been about a 60 yard touchdown pass that landed directly in his hands. And he just dropped it. Yeah. A few plays later makes a 30 yard reception and fumbles the ball. Uh, all of the Husky offensive players watches the defensive player, picks up the ball, begins to run down the field, and only Michael Penix Jr. has the presence of mind to use the sideline to tackle him and get him out of bounds and uh, you know allow the, the clock to run out. But um, if if not for that last drive, because there was I think there was two drops and the fumble, 
on on that drive, Penix probably would have finished with over 500 yards passing and yeah. uh, five touchdowns. And so it was just it was a little bit maddening to to watch that, knowing that these are guys that are all American candidates that just kind of let their guard down a little bit. Uh, in this game, I will say one thing, Mark, though, before we move on, there's I think there's been a little bit of grumbling from some members of the Husky media and fandom about uh, where the the pass rush is right now for the, the Washington Huskies. Yeah, uh, they got a couple sacks on Saturday. They only got one the previous week against Boise State, but they're getting a lot of pressure on the quarterback. And I think that because of Braylon Trice and ZTF and the reputation that they had going into the season, schools are coming in prepared to say, we're going to double and triple team Braylon Trice and we're going to get rid of the ball really, really quickly. And so you know, we saw multiple forced three and outs in both games. And I, I attribute that to the pass rush, even though they didn't get to the quarterback. I think that they are affecting the game. And I would say the other thing is that last year, teams knew that the weakness of the the defensive, you know, side of the ball was the the backside, the, the passing game. So they were passing more because that was the weakness to expose, which gave them greater opportunity to get a few more sacks. I think now teams are realizing that the defensive backfield is stronger than it was last year, at least thus far in the season. And um, they're not passing as much. They're running the ball. They're doing more screen passes. They're trying to get rid of the ball quickly. So, um, I'm not concerned about that in the slightest. If you're a Husky fan listening to this, I wouldn't be concerned about this. When we get into the the conference season and there are gunslingers back there who want to get the ball downfield in a hurry, that's going to prov- provide more opportunities to really get after the quarterback. And I, I think that's that's really all it is. Yeah, I think uh, if if you've got if Braylon Trice is drawing a double or a triple team, and as a result he's not getting sack numbers, that doesn't mean that he's not having an impact on the game because that that's two or three guys that are occupied with him that are not occupied elsewhere, and and you know sometimes we just look at a stat and we count up something like sacks and and make a determination off of that. Oh well, we're not getting sacks. Well, like you said, if if uh, if that's leading to to quick fire firing uh, by the quarterback that leads to an incompletion because they don't have time to really get their feet set, or if it leads to them, you know, running a more conservative offense or things like that, that's still an impact just in, in different ways. So that that is the least of my concerns with, no, the least of my concerns with Washington is the receiving core. The next thing I'm not concerned about is, is the pass rush. The pass think, rush. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's definitely going to be fine. Well, Mark, a uh, long time ago when I was uh, getting my master's degree in Fort Worth, Texas, I had the pleasure of going to a TCU-Hawaii game with my dad and got to see an all-time classic battle 
between running back Ladanian Tomlinson and uh, a very productive young quarterback named Timmy Chang, who was throwing the ball all over the field. It was one of the most entertaining college football games I ever got a chance to attend with uh, Ladanian Tomlinson running for almost 300 yards in that game. And uh, Timmy Chang, I believe, threw for over 400 yards as well. And now uh, Timmy Chang is Coach Chang for the Hawaii Rainbows. And uh, they're they're coming to Oregon this weekend. Uh, What's your, you know, what's your thoughts about this game? Are you concerned at all about, uh, you know, the, the Rainbow Warriors ability to to, to chuck the ball up and down the field. And um, what are you looking for as you prepare for this game? Yeah, I, I'm definitely, I'm not c- concerned in, on a, on a win loss uh, perspective. I mean, Oregon's a 35 point favorite or something like that. So, you know, I'm, I'm pretty confident they're going to pull out the win. <laughs> uh, but I think in terms of Oregon as a defense where coming into the season, the biggest concern I think had to do with the secondary and kind of how they were going to handle some of these outstanding quarterbacks in the Pac-12, and that number is growing. Uh, they've all they just played a Texas Tech team that likes to throw the ball around. Now they're going to play a Hawaii team that averages well over 300 passing yards a game. That's going to chuck the ball 40 40 times a game, and I just look at that as that's that's really good reps for the defense mm-hmm. as they have Shador Sanders the next week. And they have Michael Penix a couple weeks after that. And they have Caleb Williams a couple weeks after that. That right now you're trying to identify those areas of improvement and, and make those substantive changes before you get into the heat of your schedule. And I think Hawaii will be the type of team that helps Oregon, both in terms of a secondary and in terms of a pass rush, kind of start to figure some of those things out or continue to figure some of those things out. So, um, you know, I'm told basically that I was, I was under the impression that Hawaii is likely to throw, just throw a deep ball as much as any team in the, in the country that, you know, Mm. they, they take shots and uh, Lanning said that it's uh, the strongest armed quarterback that they've, they've played thus far this season. And so they're expecting you know, every, every few plays that Hawaii is just going to, going to go for the home run ball and see what happens. And it's very possible they complete a couple of those, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think that'll be the interesting thing is like, if, if Oregon comes out of this game and they didn't give up any of those 40 or 50 yard completions, then I would consider that a, a really good sign for how the secondary was communicating and passing off coverages and doing different things like that. But if they give up two or three of those, then that's certainly a little more of a red flag with the types of teams that Oregon's going to have to face here in the near future. So if, if Hawaii finishes with over 300 yards passing, but say less than 80 yards rushing, are you going to be frustrated or are you going to say, Oh, well, that's just how this game was scripted out. Yeah, I mean, if they if they dink and dunk their way to 300 yards, that's not really going to unsettle me. I mean, I, I think I'd be curious to know how many points does that lead to? Because if it's right, it may be 
12 points or 15. If if it's 14 or 17 points and they, but they threw for 350 yards, that doesn't really bother me. I think if it's, um, if they threw for 350 yards and they managed to put together like three scoring drives because of deep passes that they were able to connect on that either Mm. scored or got them in really good field position or got them out of their own end or, you know, some different things like that, like then that's a little more of a, of a concern to me. Okay. Well, certainly uh, the Huskies have a bit of a more concern this weekend going on the road uh, against uh, Michigan state team that they faced last year at home. It really was a coming out party for the university of Washington, Kalen DeBoer, Michael Penix, Jr., and uh, now the storyline is not going to be Penix or the University of Washington. It's going to be the uh, dismissal or or the suspension of uh, Michigan State head coach Mel Tucker after uh, reports came out of a investigation related to a sexual harassment uh, allegation. So. Um, certainly not the news headline that we were expecting going into this game, but uh, Mark, I, I think one of the things that was interesting to me about this story is who the sexual allegation is coming from. And what I mean by that is that uh, the woman that um, is, you know, making this allegation she has made a career of going from college football team to college football team, giving talks and presentations about, uh, you know, honoring women, protecting women, being an advocate for women because she had uh, been a rape victim in her early twenties. And now she's kind of trying to help educate people. So, the way that this story has played out is certainly one of the more bizarre and ironic and uh, unexpected types of stories you could imagine. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing is pretty, pretty troubling. Uh, We obviously, I mean, don't know the full story. Mel Tucker is very adamant that he, you know, um, that whatever happened was, consensual whatever um it seems pretty it just seems really bad it seems it seems really bad and uh does not cast mel tucker in a great light and yeah when you consider um what her role has been and how she even came to be involved with that school and that particular team and uh the subject matter that she was trying to provide education about uh it's just um yeah, it the whole thing is enough to make your stomach turn. It feels like these stories come out of the Big Ten conference disproportionately to everywhere else. It just mm. feels like we get these stories, whether it's, you know, uh, Michigan State Gymnastics or Penn State, mm. the Jerry Sandusky stuff, or, I mean, I don't know. We're, we're going in a different direction with the podcast. Right. It just, it yeah. just seems like there's, there's well, some... Well, you know, and, and getting a little bit back to football, you know, at the end of the 2021 season, Mel Tucker was the bell of the ball. I mean, he had brought 
uh, Michigan State from the ashes to an unexpected 11 and two season, finished number nine in the nation, had a victory over Michigan. Uh, Kenneth Walker was a Heisman candidate and uh, he was rewarded with a, a historic contract. Yeah. 22 rolled around. They started off two and zero. they come to Husky stadium, get dismantled by the university of Washington. And that was really kind of the, the beginning of a very disappointing season for Michigan state Spartan football fans. And even though they're two and zero to start off this season, I think there has been a growing uh, distaste towards what they believe Mel Tucker can bring to this program. So this gigantic contract is has been kind of the source of consternation for uh, Michigan State fans when it comes to what do we do if we decide we want to get rid of Mel Tucker. And the only way that they could get rid of Mel Tucker without paying him the $80 million he's owed was if he would be released for reasons of cause, um, not performance-based. And lo and behold, he's being fired or, uh, you know, it looks like after pending an investigation, he's going to be fired for cause. So, you know, you can put on your conspiracy theorist hats uh, and and kind of, you know, wax eloquent about whether or not uh, he's being thrown under the bus, whether or not he would have been protected if they were doing better on the field. But but however you want to spin it, um, if you're a Michigan State fan that was thinking, you know what, maybe, you know, Mel Tucker's not our guy. All of a sudden, this whole thing is giving you a little bit of a get out of jail free card to figure out what you're going to do at the end of the season, if not earlier. Yeah. And Texas A&M fans and administrators have to be looking at this and saying, is there anybody, <laughs> anybody that can come forward with anything on Jimbo Fisher? <laughs> <laughs> what do you, what do you got on Jimbo? <laughs> yeah. So That's right. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, uh, Mark, um, you know, I, I don't want to give away something that, um, is, uh, you know, that, that is protected by a paywall, but, um, you know, one thing that has certainly been a storyline going into this game has been the Huskies record on the road on grass fields. And uh, it's not a good one. And that, that certainly is a concern, I think, for most Husky fans. Uh, Mike Martin from Real Dog uh, wrote a really fascinating article, and I won't share all the details from it, but um, Michigan State has been preparing their field and preparing their players for this game uh, against the University of Washington. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, just the 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 grass length the the type of you know uh, type of cleats that they use uh you know for the game and so they've really been fine tuning the field for whatever home advantage they can gain 
So, of course, the Huskies have a high-flying offense. They're a passing attack. Um, I would assume that going into this game, Michigan State is going to try to slow that down. They're going to try to force the Huskies to run the ball, to dink and dunk, to avoid some of the the track meet type of scores that they've been known for over the last couple of years. Um, So to me, that's a pretty significant storyline going into this game. Yeah, it, it, uh, I mean, there's, gosh, there's, this, this goes on a whole different track of the, the gamesmanship that can go into, uh, how a field is prepared. Um, there's stories about, you know, what hockey teams will do to the ice in front of the opposing team's bench that, Mm. um, you know, that, that, uh, affects the skates in a certain way that, um, you know, I mean, the, I I I find it fascinating. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily uh, anything dirty or something that when a team lets the yeah. grass grow a little longer, knowing which opponent is coming in. I mean, I I think you you use those things to your advantage if if you have a way to do that. And so, uh, it it's almost enough to make me want to pay to go on Mike Martin's uh, site to read that. Uh, but as a Duck fan, I'm not sure that I can bring myself to. <laughs> To, to giving Mike Martin any money for real dogs uh, as much as I love Mike. Uh, no. So that's an, that's a very interesting storyline though. I yeah. I'll, I will uh, be watching the game now with that in mind of, of kind of trying to figure out is, is the surface that they're playing on having any, any sort of impact or, or is that, is that helping the Spartans in an identifiable way? I, th- I think that's a fascinating angle for this. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't think anybody wants to use that as an excuse uh, for any, you know, failure to perform at the highest level. But like you said, it is a factor and it, and it's, I don't think that they're playing dirty. I don't think that they're doing anything to, to bend the rules. Uh, they're just trying to prepare the field to help their team be as successful as possible. And I would expect any team to do that, especially when they've got a high-powered offense like Washington's coming into town. Um, And speaking of that high-powered offense, you know, we have uh, spoken at great length about the the star wide receivers at the University of Washington this year. Roma Dunze, Jalen McMillan, who both had 1,000-yard seasons last year, decided to come back and uh, pursue, you know, the Bolitnikov, pursue helping Penix get a Heisman and pursue a national championship. Jalen Polk, who uh, had, you know, almost uh, 800 yards last year as well. Those three guys are all on pace to finish the season with over a thousand yards receiving, which is absolutely unbelievable. They all have also run for a touchdown each thus far this season, which is a factor to their game that wasn't really anticipated going into the season. But uh, one more wide receiver seems to be making a name for himself out on the field, and that is the Michigan State transfer, Jeremy Bernard, who uh, will be coming up against his former team. I don't expect that Bernard is going to 
take over this game or be the central story of this game. But it, he is our number one kick returner. Uh, he's probably the top receiver coming off of the bench uh, after those those top three. And he's a guy that has proven that he can uh, get the ball in the backfield as a running back or a running option. So it's going to be fascinating to me to see what ways they utilize Bernard. And will this moment be too big for him? Will this moment, you know, like you, you mentioned the young uh, Josh Connerly getting overly excited in the first half on the road. Will this be a moment like that for him or could this be his uh, coming out party to the nation as well to say, Hey, uh, when Rome and Jalen take off for the NFL at the end of the season, I'm going to be the guy. Do you think this is an interesting question to me? Do you think you, so you mentioned that those big three receivers have all run for a touchdown this season. Yes. You hear that right. So in, in practice in the week leading up to a game, I would think, the coaching staff, you know, uh, Kalen DeBoer and Ryan Grubb are thinking in terms of like, oh, this, you know, we've got this, this particular play we'd like to run in this situation. We think, you know, we could, we could use that. And whether they have one of those specific receivers in mind or whether it's just kind of who happens to be out on the field when the play is called, you know, I have a feeling that there's some thought put into at least the the play call in the situation and, and they're, they're going in kind of knowing that thing is in their back pocket and, and when they want to call it. So I'm wondering if they have a play like that in mind for the Michigan state game, uh, do, do they go out of their way to call it for Jeremy Bernard? Or is it just one of those things that I, I tend to think that coaches are so hyper-focused on just winning the game. Yeah that they're not nearly as tuned into some of these storylines as we think they are, you know, that if, if Jeremy mm-hmm. Bernard ends up scoring a touchdown that we'll probably equate it to like, Oh, well, Kalen DeBoer wanted him to get a touchdown against his former team. But in reality, it, it would probably just be a situational thing of he happened to be in the right place at the right time. Uh, but there's also kind of the, um, the storyteller in me that would like to think that there's some sort of effort to, to set him up for some, some success in this game. No, I mean, without a doubt. And I, I think, you know, you're, you're spot on in a couple senses. I think in the one sense, I think that, that when they have the opportunity to do something like that, uh, coaches love to do it. Um, you know, and, and we saw an example of that in this past game against Tulsa, you know, you were mentioning how Oregon likes to go for two early in the game. Well, the Huskies had a, uh, you know, a two-point conversion trick play in which the long snapper for the team snapped the ball and then ran out and caught a pass from Dylan Morris for two points. And I think that was 100% just them saying, hey, you know, you work your tail off. You're a team player. You don't get a lot of recognition. Here you go. And yeah. it's it's Tulsa. We feel pretty good about, you know, this isn't going to cost us the game if it doesn't work out. Yeah. So I think they did it there. 
against Michigan State on the road, I don't think they're going to go out of their way to, you know, help somebody get a special touchdown for sentimentality or, you know, to make a statement uh, to their yeah. former team or anything like that. But I, I do think that one of the unique things for both of these squads, and maybe maybe you can kind of lead some light on this with the journey that, uh, you know, Marcus Mariota went through as the Heisman Trophy winner. But when a player like Penix comes into the season as a Heisman candidate, I would think that from a coaching staff perspective, you are saying, okay, we've got to make sure that we're doing what we can do to help, you know, bolster that, that argument, that reputation. So does that mean, you know, if Michigan state uh, brings a defense in which they're dropping eight into coverage, on every single down, you know, do they just, do the Huskies say, Hey, we, we have to run it. And Penix ends up throwing for 240 yards, a touchdown, and they win the game by, you know, 14 points. Or do they say like, Nope, you know, we're going to dance with the one who brought us here. And Michael Penix is our guy and he can, he can beat any defense we can out scheme it, you know, like what's, what do you think some of the thinking is when it comes to that? Cause you know, obviously priority number one is win the game, but they are trying to help build his resume. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think, um, I think the thing, especially with a quarterback, um, who's handling the ball on every play, I think the thought process in a coaching staff's mind is is what's best for the offense as a whole is what's is what's best for the quarterback. And so if you remember those Mariota teams, I mean, he ended up throwing, I think he threw 42 touchdown passes that year. Mm-hmm. But Oregon was always a dominant run first team. Mm-hmm. You know, uh and, and I, running was a part of his game too. And running was a part of his game, you know, he he ran for over 700 yards that year. So um, but I mean, they definitely had games during that season where they just rode Royce Freeman and Thomas Tyner, and those guys had huge games rushing the ball. And then Mariota would finish like 19 of 23 for mm. 220 yards, three touchdowns, or something like that, like a hyper efficient, mm-hmm. but but not necessarily like jaw dropping in terms of the total amount of yardage, but um. But I don't I don't think that goes into a coach's mind in terms of like, oh, he's only at 200 yards and we need to try to get him up to 300 by the end of the game. I don't I don't think they're they're thinking in in those terms. I think I think coaches are always thinking about the next possession and how do we how do we take the legs out from underneath the opponent and mm-hmm. you know, what's the best strategy for that? And I think if um if that means it's running the same running play 12 times in a row, then you do that. And if it means we're going to throw the ball 40 or 50 times a game, then you do that. And so I I think the best thing for Penix would be for the Washington coaching staff to just focus on trying to score every drive and the rest will take care of itself, especially with that 
group of receivers. I mean, um, they're so talented and I just, I, I have a hard time seeing Washington change their identity to where we're just seeing Washington just kind of ground and pound, especially when you, you lost your first string running back who's season season ending injury before the season even started. I just think that this is, this is a team that's going to be passed first all season long. Mm-hmm. No, that's good insight. Well, Hey, let's wrap it up. Um, it's been another great episode. Thank you everybody for listening to the show. Uh, Mark, any final thoughts or uh, predictions heading into this weekend? Uh, I think, I think Washington will have a closer game than Oregon. That's my prediction. Okay. <laughs> N- not entirely a risky call, but. No, I think, yeah. uh, I, I think Washington will win and what are they a 16 point favorite? I, I, I think they will cover. Yeah. Uh, I'm a, I'm well aware Warren that playing against an interim coach is not necessarily something that the Huskies thrive under those circumstances. And so. You've got Michigan State shaking up the coaching staff. Sometimes a, a team will get a little bit of a bounce from that. Uh, but I think this situation is different. I, I think uh, shaking up a coaching staff of a losing team by getting rid of the losing coach, having an assistant take over and, and change the culture, that can jumpstart a losing team. Michigan State was 2-0 to start the year and was feeling fairly optimistic, and now their coach is out the door, and I just – I don't see that being a positive for the culture of the program and in this week as they try to prepare for a really good Washington team. No, I agree. Um, I'm going to, I don't, we don't always do score predictions, but I'm going to predict the Huskies win. Uh, I'm going to say 45, 24 is the final score for the Huskies. So convincing win last year, we won 39 to 28 and we kind of, let them score some late touchdowns to make it seem closer than it actually was. But um, I I think this is a game that the Huskies are going to, they're going to try to keep the foot on the gas the whole way through. And um, especially knowing that uh, they're going to be entering into the big 10 conference. And uh, I think they want to, they want to show themselves well to all the potential recruits in that part of the country yeah. that are making decisions about what kind of team they want to be a part of. So, uh, all right, well with that, we'll wrap it up. Uh, thank you all of our dog fans for listening. And, uh, as we always do, we'll wrap up for our dog fans with go dogs and for all our duck fans, go ducks. All right, guys, we'll catch you next time.